This is a recording made in the chapel of the opened book under the covering title Christian Fundamentals. We are dealing with a section dealing with redemption and atonement and the consequences of redemption. Number three, acceptance and presentation. Those of you who are listening may care to join us as we read together the book of Esther, chapters 1 and 2. Well, we've just read these two chapters of a very fascinating book, the book of Esther. That is not our theme this evening, but it gives us a start. You have in this story something that would be in the mind of the Apostle Paul when he spoke about the presentation of the believer before a greater king than Aeshuerus. And you notice what had to be done to these women just to go into the king's presence and then as it says if they were not accepted to go to a second house and that was the end of the story so far as they were concerned. Six months with oil of myrrh and six months with sweet odours. What a preparation just for an earthly monarch. Well, we'd retranslate all these wonderful things and say, we too need a tremendous preparation before we can be accepted in that terrific presence. There's one beautiful thing that comes out in the story of Esther. It says in verse 15, Now when the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her for his daughter, was come to go into the king, she required nothing but what Haggai, the king's chamberlain, the keeper of the women, appointed. It seems as though she was the exception. And I can well understand, if you can imagine the description that's already given you in the first chapter of the silver, and the white, and the violet, and the green, the black, and the red, and all the marble, and the marvellous colourings. Cannot you imagine that these different women would be taking the silks and the satins and the velvets and the pearls, all the various things to make them presentable. And this one woman, she just said, no, whatever you say is fit, I'll accept. There's a little picture there for us. We are not going to be accepted in Christ because we pile on this or we wear that or the other. It's all of his grace and all of his gift and we bow in his presence and say, no, whatsoever pleaseth thee. There's one more point before we leave this extraordinarily wonderful book. When you read it right through, you may perhaps observe that there is no reference to the name of God. It's an exceptional book. The name of God isn't mentioned. But if you were a Hebrew reader, you would begin to notice that at certain places, the four-letter name Jehovah was written in an acrostic form. I'll only give you the first passage, and we've already read the passage, Chapter 1, verse 20. And when the king's decree which he shall make shall be published throughout all his empire, for it is great, all the wives shall give to their husbands honour. Now, those words, all the wives shall give, have got the letters equivalent to our L-O-R-D. And if you have the companion Bible, you see Dr. Bullinger has just invented 
uh, instead of translating all the wives shall give, because that doesn't give us any name, he's got due respect our ladies shall give, and due respect our ladies, spelled D-R-O-L. And so we read it this way, L-O-R-D. The next time it comes the other way around. Four different ways this acrostic comes at some critical point in the book. And the lesson is this. Even though you do not see the hand of God, and it all seems as he's forgotten you, he's using the rebellion of Vashti and the feelings of these men to bring this one into the story. And there's another reason. Mordecai was the son of Kish, a Benjaminite. So he was descended from the same tribe and family as King Saul. And King Saul spared Agag. And if you'll look at, um, just in passing, at chapter 5, I think it is. Just just a moment. I've missed it. Oh, in chapter 3, it says, um, Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. You see, the man who was going to be more tender-hearted than God was saving an enemy that was about to massacre the whole of his people, were it not for his intervention. Well, if we go on much longer, our subject will be the book of Esther instead of the foundations of uh, the Christian faith, which this evening is another one of the consequences of redemption and atonement. That is, our acceptance and our presentation. Uh, They more or less mingle. We are accepted, otherwise we'd never be presented. So we bring the two together in our study this evening. Now the first thing I want to do is to ask you to notice the meaning of two words that will be uh, have a place in our story. Now, first of all, we come to the epistle to the Colossians, chapter 1, where we read in verse 12, giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. The words to make us meet. I'll give you just three different translations of this particular word. I don't think you need to turn to Matthew 3.11. It's the language of John the Baptist who said he was not worthy to loose the latchet of his shoe. He was not worthy. This one says, God has made you worthy. Not that you're worthy in yourself, but you're there in some worthiness that he sees. And then, in Acts 17.9, which you might like to look at, you get another translation of this same word, which is here, to make meat. Acts 17, verse 9. And when they had taken security of Jason and of the other, they let them go. That's the word security. We are accepted in the Beloved, and we have security in him. We have a worthiness in him that we do not possess ourselves. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 16,
at the end of verse 16, and who is sufficient for these things? Chapter 3, 5. Not that we are sufficient as of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. Now that's the word that Paul has chosen in Colossians 1, 12, when he thanks God that has made us sufficient, made us worthy, made us secure in Christ. Not that we are boasting in ourselves, we're just as poor and abject and outside as ever. But what a position to be placed in, according to this marvellous plan of God. That's one word. Now the other word is to present. Colossians 1 again. Colossians 1.22 this time. In the body of his flesh, through death, to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Now this word is paristemi. Uh, I mention it because you can see that the first part of the word means alongside, pari, like a parallel line. This isn't standing in front of somebody. It isn't sitting at his footstool. But the marvel is we're going to be standing beside him. Paddy Stevie. What a presentation. No half measures with God. When he accepts us, he accepts us completely and fully. So I think perhaps we might like to collect these passages now. The first one I will not turn to. But if you do not know 2 Timothy 2.15, well you ought to be ashamed of yourselves. Study to show thyself approved under God. You see? That word show is paristemi. There is a, an echo in our attitude. There's an echo in our service of our position in Christ. This man's a workman, but before that, Timothy was presented, or will be presented, and knew he would, spotless, so far as his salvation was concerned. And so, the apostle says, well, Timothy if you know this marvellous presentation is yours that's coming, will you not as a workman study to present yourself? That you need not be ashamed of your service any more than you need be ashamed of your standing in Christ. Because it's a big order, isn't it? In Romans the 12th chapter we get this same word where we have another exhortation. Romans 12, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice. You present. See, you are going to be presented holy, acceptable unto God. So you see, while we stress and must stress that all we possess is an absolute gift in grace, it nevertheless comes back on us and says, well, what manner of persons ought we to be if that is our position in Christ? And in the sixth chapter, just to give one more, in the sixth chapter, verse 13, we have the same word, neither yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God. That's the same word, to present. And one further passage. In the epistle of Jude, we use it so many times as a benediction at the end of our service because it so often seems to fit our theme. There's a slight difference in the wording which we ought to notice. Jude, verse 24. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless, 
before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Here we have the word histemi without any para. You're going to stand. Not alongside, but before. Now I wouldn't make too much of this, but I do know that the calling of the one body and the mystery places the believer at the very pinnacle of glory. You cannot be higher than where Christ sits at the right hand of God. And so when Paul uses the word present, it's parasteme, alongside. When Jude uses it, it stands before. If there is a difference, the difference is in the favour of the poor outside Gentile ourselves. Well now, with that analysis, briefly, of the two words that are used, we come now to the various passages which emphasise this um, position. And now, coming to the epistle to the Ephesians, we first of all will look at chapter 1, verse 6, To the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Most of us know that this is a peculiar word occurring nowhere else except in Luke's Gospel, where the angel used the very same word of the Virgin Mary and said, Thou art highly favoured among women. Well, we are highly favoured among the redeemed, for we are highly favoured in the beloved indeed. So we look back, and in verse 4, we've got our words. Without blame, holy and without blemish. Verse 4, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Holy and without blemish. Sometimes they translate it blame, but without blemish is a good word to keep. Then if you look at um, chapter 5, you get another passage, chapter 5, verse 26 and 27, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. I should imagine that by the time Esther had had her six months of oil of myrrh and six months whatever else she had, I don't think she got many wrinkles anyhow, would you think so? Well, here's the same thing in spiritual values. He's going to present this church without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Then we've had the passage already quoted from Colossians 1, where we are to be presented without spot, and as an added word, as I think most of us are aware, it says, in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy <coughs> and unblameable and unreprovable. Now this is adding. The, the same words are used here as holy and without blemish, which are temporal words, words describing the sacrifice, words describing the priest. But added to that is the word unreprovable. And we shall discover that that is found in uh, other contexts, especially in the Acts of the Apostles, where it's used of the accusation against the believer. And it comes in the Epistle to the Romans, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Now, we have the laying of a charge in a law court. 
So whether you think of being uh, amenable to a scrutiny from a judge in a law court, or whether you think you may be scrutinized by a high priest as to whether you are fit to enter into the holy precincts of the holiest of all, where Christ sits, he says, if you're in Christ, you will be. What a wonderful thought, isn't it? Well, now we'll pursue that a little further. First of all, we'll notice in the first epistle of Peter that what is said of the believer is said of Christ. And of course, we should, strictly speaking, say what is said of Christ is said of the believer, for that must come first. First of Peter, chapter 1, verse 18, 19, 20. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold. Now, we generally associate redemption, us poor Gentiles, with sin. And we'd rightly so. But these people were in another bondage, quite apart from sin. They were in the bondage of ceremony. Bondage of tradition that had been passed down until it became a fetter. So he says, you've been redeemed from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. But with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb, without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Friends, Ephesians 1 says that you were chosen before the foundation of the world, that you should be without blemish and without spot. And you are told that before the foundation of the world, exactly the same period, the Lord Jesus Christ was set apart to be a lamb without blemish and without spot. So you'll appreciate, won't you, that God had his eye on Christ when he had his eye on you and me. What a thousand pities that there has been now put forward a new interpretation of Ephesians 1. Instead of translating it, we were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. That's right back in the beginning. The new suggestion is that we are now chosen in this life before God sets up his world order in the coming future, all to bend the teaching of scripture to fit a new idea. It's a sad evidence of how far a person may go when he wants to bend the teaching of scripture to further his own ends. But we'll leave that for the time being. Now, if you'll turn back to the book of Numbers, just to get a further idea of what was in the mind of the writers and of the Spirit of God when he spoke about this being without spot and without blemish. Numbers, the 19th chapter, verse 2. And the Lord spake unto Moses and to, uh, unto Aaron, saying, This is the ordinance of the law which the Lord hath commanded, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel that they bring thee a red heifer without spot, wherein is no blemish, and upon which, upon which never came the yoke, a yoke. So here we have the qualification of a sacrifice in the estimate of God. It must be without spot and it must be without blemish. Well, then again, in the book of Leviticus, if you'll turn back to chapter 21, verse 17 and 18. 
Don't think these are unnecessary because the New Testament sacrificial story is bedded in these Old Testament types. Leviticus 21 verse 17 and 18 Speak unto Aaron, saying, Whosoever he be of the seed of thy seed in their generations that hath any blemish, let him not approach to offer the bread of his God. For whatsoever man he be that hath a blemish, he shall not approach a blind man or a lame or he that hath a flat nose or anything superfluous or a man that is broken-footed or broken-handed and so on, crook-backed. Now those poor wretches, of course, couldn't help being dwarfed or crook-backed or blemished in the eye or whatnot, but so far as type is concerned, they were excluded from the possibility of being a priest. It's no good saying, but I'm one of the legitimate priesthood, I belong to the family of Aaron. God demanded something more than being of the family of Aaron. You must be of the family of Aaron, but you must be without blemish. So these priests who ministered in the tabernacle, they must have been the very cream so far as physical fitness was concerned. Now all that is to be retranslated in spiritual terms. Read these words again. Whosoever he be of thy seed in their generations that hath any blemish, let him not approach to offer the bread of his God. Well, we should be all ruled out, shouldn't we? And yet we are reading in the same scriptures that those of us who are in Christ are to be without blemish and without spot and without wrinkle and without any such thing because we are accepted in the Beloved. One more, Exodus chapter 12, verse 5. Here we have another reference, the great Passover. And once more, you have a stress upon this characteristic. I won't go to any further passages. Your lamb shall be without blemish. Your lamb shall be without blemish. And you will notice that it says in verse 3, this lamb was to be taken on the tenth day of the month and it was not offered until the 14th day of the month. So there were practically five days, not four, five days practically, in which it was possible to examine that lamb. And you remember our Saviour, he wasn't taken necessarily on the 10th day of the month, but very near it. And he was examined. He was examined by those who hated him an illegal trial at night time, and they found no fault with him until they suborned false witnesses, and then they hurried him off to Pilate. And Pilate examined him, and he sent word to these Jews. He said, I find nothing worthy of death in him. And when he heard that he'd been ministering in Galilee, he took the opportunity to get rid of him and sent him to Herod. And Herod sent word back, I find nothing worthy of death in this man. And then even a dying thief said to his fellow who was crucified with him, we ourselves are being punished according to our deeds, but this man has done nothing amiss. They all said, this Lamb of God is without blemish. He was examined as surely as the Lamb itself on the Passover. Well now the next thing is, to observe one or two features 
with regard to this. I said already that the word, added word, uh, in Colossians, when it says, uh, unreprovable, was a word that took us to the law court. So would you like to get one passage for that from the Acts of the Apostles? You'll find several more if you care to look for them, but this one will be sufficient. Acts 26, verses 1 and 2. Acts 26, 1 and 2. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Thou art permitted to speak for thyself. Then Paul stretched forth a hand and answered for himself, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because I shall answer for myself this day before thee, touching all the things whereof I am accused of the Jews. That's the word that gives us the word unreprovable. Now accusation can be laid against the child of God. And in chapter 19, verse 40, we have another rendering. 19, verse 40. For we are in danger to be called in question for this day's uproar. Called in question. And you see, it's a legal expression. It says in verse 38, Wherefore, if Demetrius and the craftsmen which are with him have a matter against any man, the law is open, and there are deputies. Let them implead one another. So you see, we've got a context of the lamb and the priest, which is temple or tabernacle, and we've got a context of law and deputies and impleading and accusations, and we're exempt in both places. Whichever, wherever we go in these things, we can go without trepidation. We can go because of our glorious acceptance. When we look at the word access in Ephesians 2, and in Ephesians 3, we are reminded we not only have access, but we have access with boldness and confidence through the faith of him. And so we have acceptance with boldness and confidence. We hold up our head in the searchlight of God's presence, whether it be in the holiest of all, or whether it be in the very law court itself. These would be bombastic words, friends. They would be utterly evil in their uh, emphasis were it not based upon the fact that God has said so. And there we rest. We mustn't minimise it, but we must remember by grace to seek to adorn such a doctrine by a worthy walk, so far as grace permits us. Well now, let's take one or two words. I found that my pen, that sometimes writes a few articles for me when I don't quite know how to get on with them, put down purpose, predestination, pleasure, and power. Well, that's nice. That's all beginning with letter P. So I think we'll just accept that. Ephesians 1.4 Chosen in him before the foundation of the world. And then it goes on to say, you remember, in, in Ephesians 1, I think it's verse... Um, 11 in whom, in whom we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Purpose. We have uh, his good pleasure in verse 5, according to the good pleasure of his will. And we have the word in verse 5, predestination, or being marked off beforehand by God for this very object. So behind us, you see, 
is a purpose. It's not merely that we've just happened into this position. It was planned. It was a part of the reason why Christ came and died. He was fulfilling the purpose of the ages, which involved the thought that one day, poor, outcast, sinful people, who had no strength of their own and no ability of their own, should be presented perfect. There was more peace coming out, friends. We must mind our peas, and I don't know what the cues will be, but I think we can get a few presently if we wish. Well now let's look at the other side, power. Let's go to that one in Jude that we've quoted before, because there is really the word power. It's hidden in our English translation, uh, but I would advise you that you're dealing with dynamite when you're reading this, because that is the actual word, uh, it's the dynamic word, the word that gives us dynamite and dynamo in our own language. That is the word able. Now unto him that is completely able, he's got all the power necessary to keep you from falling. And if you're acquainted with the book of Jude, and see the horrible conditions under which these people were living, likened to the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, and spots in their feasts, trees whose fruit withereth, twice dead, plucked up with a root, wandering stars, oh dear, awful condition. And then, it all ends. Now unto him, that is completely able, has got all the power necessary to keep you from falling and to present you. Two sides. Keep you from and present you to. So we've got purpose and pleasure and predestination and power. And when we come to think of this emphasis on the word power, we have it in the Gospel presentation. Romans 1.16 The power of God unto salvation. That's the same word. It's the miracle of God as the word is translated in Matthew's Gospel. A miraculous power is extended to everyone that is on this journey. And in the... Um, in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 20, there is another reference which I think we ought to include in this. The 20th chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, verse 32. The Apostle is about to leave them and he is told them they shall see his face no more. He very soon enters prison and is not out of prison for another four years. Two years in Caesarea, two years at Rome. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. So we come right down to the word of God. I commend you not only to God, but I commend you to the word of his grace. Well, where shall we find the word of his grace that's associated with Paul the prisoner if we do not know the epistle to the Ephesians. He says, I commend you to that word of his grace, which is able, which has the power in it, to build you up, and to give you an inheritance 
So Colossians thanks God that he has made us meet for the inheritance. And he says, I've given you a word of grace that builds you up and gives you this inheritance among all them which are sanctified. Well now this leads us, as I hope it should in our thoughts, to some little element of acceptance so far as we ourselves are concerned. I was just making sure I hadn't missed out anything of great importance and nearly always something uh, that uh, I find I missed out, but that's a tribute to the book, isn't it? You never can exhaust it. It'll exhaust you in rather. But I have a point here, Ephesians 3.20, one passage from this word of grace which we're to trust, and it says so many wonderful things in this chapter 1, 2 and 3 that it's quite understandable that some folks, and we among them possibly, say, you know, I begin to wonder whether we're overdoing it, whether what we are saying is too good to be true. So here is the final summing up of the doctrinal section. Now unto him that is able of power to do exceeding abundantly above that's a pile of words, isn't it? Exceeding, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. For now that power that worketh in us is defined in the Scriptures as the power of his resurrection, the risen Christ, the source of power that not only saves, but keeps. Well now, one or two words with regard to this uh, acceptableness. I've already referred you in, in passing to Romans the 12th chapter. I think we ought to look at it again with this in view. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present, now that we looked at there because we have a presentation to make, a very minute little echo of the great presentation of which God is going to make, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable. Now you see, we are accepted in the Beloved. Well, surely the echo should be, if we are accepted in Him, we ought to at least show winning, if we don't make much of a show of it, that our actions and our life and our service should be acceptable to Him. He says, that's your reasonable service, and this is the word logical. Oh, he says, this is a bit of logic. If God has done that to you, surely you're going to have a reflection and a response. It's not putting it upon you as a legal obligation, but he says it's a reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And as we've said before, we must say again, Every one of us would have to agree, whether we like it or not, that the will of God must be good, and the will of God must be perfect. But I'm asking you, and I'm asking myself, is it always acceptable? Well, I think if we all told the truth, we say sometimes we wish God wouldn't ask us to do certain things, or didn't allow certain things, and we begin to wonder why he does certain things. But if you're in line, you see, if you are acceptable to him, and you're accepted in the Beloved, and these two things begin to harmonise, his will will be acceptable as well. What a position to be in. 
So there's room for improvement in most of us still, friends. I use that expression sometimes when somebody has taken a new house and it's a marvellous house. All the things that this, this new house they've got. I said, there's one room in it, I'm sure. Yes, what is it? Room for improvement. Still true, isn't it? It's true of us all. And here it is. Well, now let's take one or two other passages. Philippians 2.15 Philippians 2.15 He says in verse 14, Do all things without murmurings and disputings. Murmurings throw you back to the 40 years in the wilderness. You know, there was one of these stumbling blocks of Israel. Murmurings. That ye may be blameless and harmless the sons of God without rebuke. You see, he's coming back now. You are in Christ blameless and harmless and without rebuke. But I want you to be like that in your everyday life. In the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, that word is, among whom not merely you shine as lights in the world, but among whom shine ye as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life. And then if you look at 1 Thessalonians 2.10 This is the Apostle speaking of his own service. And one of the things that we notice in the Apostle is he practically never tells a believer to do something, to practice something. But what he says, I'm doing it myself. 1 Thessalonians 2.10 Ye are witnesses and God also how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe. But this man, you see, although he took God as his witness, he had to say in verse 3, for our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile. So you see, there's not one of us can escape the scorn and the false representation of men. But here was this man saying that he was unblameable with regard to his behaviour among them. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 14 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 14 He's giving a charge to his son Timothy that thou keep this commandment without spot unrebukable. You see it's coming friends you are without spot and unrebukable. Well now let your service carry the same characteristic about it, so far as it's possible by grace. That ye keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 14. 2 Peter has been speaking about the dreadful things that are yet to come and the passing away of the present heaven, the dissolution of the elements. It says in verse 13, Nevertheless we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace, without spot, and blameless. So the first epistle says that the Lamb of God, Christ himself, before the foundation of the world, was without spot 
and blameless. And he says to those who follow that lamb, when the dissolution takes place after the disruption that comes at the other end of the age, you also by his mercy see that you so walk that you shall be without spot and blameless. You may say this is a high ideal. It may be something which you'll never strictly attain. But there is a little proverb I remind myself sometimes, and uh, I know one or two in this meeting are, uh, are already anticipating what I'm going to say. But it says that the man who aimed at the moon, he got a little bit higher than he who aimed at a gooseberry bush. I mean, even if you never manage to hit the moon, it's, it's something that you're aiming at. And so even though we may never be satisfied that our service corresponds with our acceptance in the Benabid, we're on the right road if we are seeking to make them in some measure harmonise and balance. Well, there we have it, friends. We are to be presented. The presentation of Esther is just a faint figure. But what a blessed one. And just as surely as Christ has undertaken for us with regard to bearing our sin and become our righteousness before God. The Apostle wrote to the Corinthians and said that he has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification as well as redemption. In other words, Christ is all and in all to us. May that be the keynote of our witness, the lodestar of our lives, and if that can only be pronounced of us when we stand in his presence, a happy people we shall be.